welcome to our third episode for our project. This is going to be on sacred music. Once again, I'm Michael Sauter, and I'm with uh, Joe Gunyavich here. Pleased to be here, Michael. I guess I just want to continue laying some foundations for getting into the history and text of the Mass, which we're ultimately going towards. We talked last time about the gestures and sacramentality, um, but music, perhaps people don't realize, but this also is a very fundamental aspect of liturgy. When people think about sacred music, they probably think about what they happen to experience at their local parish, largely which is probably made up of hymns and songs. Um, so is this sort of what we're talking about in sacred music? Right. Well, Michael, the Mass is comprised uh, of a text, right? So mm-hmm. so we, can, we know this. We know that there is the prayers that the priest prays, the opening prayer and the closing prayer. We know there's the Eucharistic prayer. But some of the text of the Mass are songs, some of it, the the text are things that are meant to be sung. Right, so like, we can think of the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest. Or we can think of the Agnus Dei. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And these are different than hymns. So when we're talking about hymns, we are talking about things that we're used to singing at Mass, but they're not actually part of the text of the Mass. They're not singing the Mass. We can make a distinction between singing the Mass and singing at Mass. And the most basic thing of singing the Mass is that simple Dominus vobiscum et cum spiritu tuo. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. And the other things right. we sing back and forth with the priest. But then also we can think of singing the the Gloria and the Agnus Dei, like I said, and the other parts that are the actual text of the Mass. That's different than singing hymns. I see. The hymns and songs that we usually sing at Mass, those are sort of added on in a sense... Um, they don't form an integral part of the Mass. It's not like we need to sing them at those points at which we sing them. Yeah, the church documents from the 20th century give a reason for hymns, which is because they're very useful to express the piety of the people. And uh, so when we're singing hymns together, it's a very powerful experience. But it's got to be understood that the hymns are not actually part of the Mass. So, I think that we've got levels here we're talking about. So, hymns and songs, those, um, they're used at Mass sometimes, but is there something more than that, musically, that the Church is sort of pointed to? Yeah, uh, according to a document from the 19, 1958 that summarized all the teaching of the Church and the practice of the Church up to that point, the Church admits really five types of music into the Mass, and... Uh, hymns is the last of the, that type of music, okay. but other than that, the church allows there to be some interludes, musical interludes that don't have voice. But that's kind of next to hymns, that's the, the lowest part of what we mean when we say sacred music. Mm-hmm. The thing that is mostly sacred music is um, Gregorian chant. In fact, this question was settled at the Second Vatican Council, where it said that the church acknowledges Gregorian chant to be proper 
to the Roman liturgy. That word proper means it's her own. It means it's it's part and parcel of the liturgy. It's not something separate from the liturgy. Then okay. after that would be sacred polyphony, which grew, grew out of Gregorian chant. It came about through decorating Gregorian chant, adding multiple voices, trying to make it as beautiful as possible. And then the third type would be modern compositions having that that are of the text of the mass that might have multiple types of instruments and multiple voices think mozart think think the schubert right? right yeah yeah and then those so those are the five of them gregorian chant sacred polyphony modern compositions uh, uh musical musical interludes and hymns and those last two musical interludes and hymns are really different because the first three are about singing the mass the last two are really about decorating the mass in an effort to bring up to increase our piety when we're at Mass. Right, okay. So, Gregorian chant is the music that the Church has sort of pointed and said, that is um, that is ours, like no other music. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it, Michael. The Gregorian chant is the music of the Roman Mass. It's the music uh, uh, that came out of the Roman Mass, that grew up with the Roman Mass. It's not separate from it. It's not trying to decorate it. It is actually part of the very nature of the Roman Mass. In Intersolutitudines by Pius X, uh, which is also called Trale Solutitudine, Pius X says, Sacred music is to be considered sacred insofar as it matches, uh, as it approximates the spirit and the movements of Gregorian chant. And John Paul II repeated this in about 2000, 2001, uh, and made it the, these words his own. So Gregorian chant, the spirit of it, the rhythms of it, is for the Latin liturgy, the definition or, or the, the, the type of what we mean when we're say, talking about sacred music. Okay. Well, that makes it, I guess, a bit more concrete, um, because you know, you ask what's sacred music. Well, I mean, you, we can point to something in the Latin rite. Um, we can point to something and say, look, that's it. That's kind of the standard. Uh, and it gives us a way to internalize the spirit of the liturgy and understand its nature. So, people who are composing music, people who are making new music, which is perfectly good for the liturgy, can always draw from that same source. Right. Um, Pius XI added that those who are trying to p- compose new things for the liturgy ought to be themselves immersed in the sacred tradition of the liturgy, principally Gregorian chant. Right. You've made some distinctions among levels of sacred music, but I mean, there's also music, say, we could call you know, Christian worship music, praise and worship, religious music, uh, secular music. There are a lot of different levels of music, just generally speaking. So how does sacred music place in the broader context then of, of different types of music? So sacred music, when we say sacred, we really mean the music that is introduced into the holiest part of the church's life, which is the sacred liturgy. Mm -hmm. So sacred music is the music that's part of the sacred liturgy. Not all music is equally as appropriate for all different things. So when we're talking about the mass, that's something that is more sacred to us than benediction. And benediction is more sacred to us than processions. And processions are more sacred to us than private devotions that maybe a priest leads in the church. 
and private devotions are 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 more sacred to us than maybe um, our own prayer time at home right. or a prayer meeting that we might have with other Christians. And so we can think of different music being appropriate to these different types of uh, situations, and we can say pretty clearly some music just doesn't fit in the sacred liturgy. Handel's Messiah comes to mind. That is music that, even though it's religious, it is not meant for the Mass, but it's perfectly fine for other things. So, Pius X said, well, some instruments that you might want to ha- not want to have as part of the Mass— Go ahead and have those as part of processions around around right. town. You can imagine so, those great processions. Would it be safe to say then that music, in order to be sacred, the norm should be that it's written for the liturgy, like that its purpose is to be for the liturgy? I mean, there might be a few exceptions to that, but in general as the norm. And primarily, we would want to say it even takes its text from the liturgy. Right, yeah. That is the norm. So sacred is in some way set apart. That's what the word means. It's related to holy. It's set apart, and it's set apart for what is the holiest thing that we do, which is the liturgy, as opposed to when we use the word profane, we don't mean evil. We mean what is not set apart for the holiest function of the church, for this worship of God. Literally profane, profano, means outside the temple. So hmm, when we yeah. say we say something is sacred, we mean it's appropriate for the highest worship that the church has. When we say something is profane, we mean it's part of everyday life. So somehow the church is asking us and has always practiced having the music at the sacred liturgy not be the same as the music that we have in everyday life. Right, and that goes very well with what we talked about in episode two about the building being something sacred, the signs being something sacred, everything set apart a sacred space. And the music becomes part of the space then, in a sense, when we're at the Mass. Right, right. I've had the experience sometimes of going into a church and feeling like I was not part of the world that I live in for a little bit. I I once walked out Mm. of the church and had been so engaged in this liturgy that was so different from what I experienced in the world that when I walked out and I saw cars running across the street, I was shocked for a moment, (laughs) just shocked, because because it was like I had entered into something that was timeless, or at least not bound by our worldly standards. It was sacred. Right. I guess when we're talking about chant, then uh, even polyphony as well, it, this is the this marks the predominance of the voice. Um, you talked about how the sort of instrumental interludes have a very there's a lower level uh, as well as hymns and songs. So uh, it seems like preeminently then the voice stands out in terms of servicing the liturgy for music. There's a quotation from Divini Cultus which is a document from Pope Pius XI, where he notes that voices should be preferred to instruments always, because instruments, however perfect, 
however excellent, cannot surpass the human voice in expressing thought, especially when it is used by the mind to offer up prayer and praise to Almighty God. This is a general principle of the liturgy, a general principle of the sacred. Instruments are at service to uh, to the human voice and to the the meaning of the texts that we are singing. Yeah. But the human voice and the meaning of the texts always take uh, preeminence in our worship. So the text is the thing around which the music should be formed, and the voice, obviously, being the thing that speaks the text, has right. to have that, that highest place. Right, because it is the Holy Spirit that makes nimble the tongue. Mm-hmm. He has spoken through the prophets. Yeah. And we worship the Word of God, the logos, right? So we have this this uh, rational way of worshiping. Uh, in Greek, we have uh, logike latria. Logike mm. latria means this this way of worshiping through the word, through reason, and it's the Holy Spirit that gives us this ability to to sing the praises of God right. with our tongue. But in singing the praises of God with our tongue, it's like we're worshiping the incarnate logos, the Word of God made flesh. Yes, that's a that's an amazing connection. Um, but obviously, in our experience, we see instruments all over the place in masses, from very traditional masses to very regular. Let me just say, so, though, in the beginning, it was not so. In the in in the church's liturgy, many of the church fathers had expressed very negative opinions about instruments and. Certainly, whether you were allowed to have instruments in the secular life, in the church worship, instruments were not easily admitted in the time of the the apostolic church and the post-apostolic church. Uh, the Jews ha- the Jews had instruments in the temple. They yeah. didn't have instruments in the synagogue. Hmm. So the mass adopted some of that worship of the, uh, from the synagogue without instruments, but then also remembered that that the Holy Spirit is making nimble the tongue and considered the voice to be a more kind of spiritual instrument for the singing of God. It's really not until you get later on, you know, after the Edict of Milan, after the conversion of Constantine, and you begin to get into the Middle Ages that you start to see instruments and bishops tried to suppress them when hmm. they would when when they would uh, arise in the middle ages you sometimes had them sing gregorian chant with uh, bells in front of them that they could hit with hammers <laughs> and they would hit a, uh, the bell with the hammer every time that they would sing a note but that was never the ideal of the church there was never considered an instrument that was really capable of imitating sustaining augmenting and decorating the human voice enough to be admitted into the liturgy until we get into the early modern period when the organ had reached a subtlety where it could be considered to in some way share in the qualities of the human voice and to be able to help singers sing and increase the devotion of the people in the music without taking away from the preeminence of the voice in the liturgy. So again, the instruments augmenting, right? That's their function. That's their that's their role uh, in Christian so, worship. Right, right. I mean, historically, we've had 
plenty of instruments being used at liturgy, but this has been an area perhaps of abuse, and the popes have pointed this out. I'm reminded of a quotation from Benedict the Fourteenth in 1749, in Honest Qui. This is, I think, the earliest papal writing permitting other instruments besides the organ hmm. and the human voice. And um, he permitted certain stringed instruments that were played with a bow and certain wind in- instruments. But he said, quote, only, they should only be used for adding some support to the singing so that the meaning of the prayers is more clearly brought to the minds of the listeners and the souls of the faithful are moved to a contemplation of spiritual things and are aroused to a love of God and of things divine. Benedict the Fourteenth lays instruments at the service of the human voice, which is where they belong in the liturgy. It's noteworthy that in some Eastern liturgies to this day, instruments aren't aren't permitted, hmm. whereas they are in the West. Yeah. But that example of the East should inspire us in the Latin liturgy to right. say to say we also want to give the proper preeminence to the voice in the worship of God. And that's in our tradition. It's not something we would inter I mean that's there. It's it's the norm of our tradition. It is, it is. First came Gregorian chant. Then came uh, organum, which is just a simple doubling of the chant. You would just have two voices, but they would be singing the exact same words. And it's only after that that you get polyphony. Multiple voices may be singing different things. And yet, and yet, it's only after polyphony that you begin to get uh, instrumental music and the like in, in the Latin liturgy. All these things can be seen as having their usefulness, for, for the liturgy, but only if we remember where we came from, only if we think that the Holy Spirit was guiding the development of music in the liturgy, and that new conceptions of the role of instruments in the liturgy should build off of the spirit of the liturgy that's been received and not replace it. Right. And so, from that same instruction, actually, that you quoted from earlier, summing up the teaching of the Church in 1958, they also said... Uh, there are some instruments which, by common estimation, are so associated with secular music that they are not at all adaptable for sacred use. Um, which is interesting because I mean, you mentioned the organ earlier, and historically the organ had very profane associations before it did come into the liturgy. And so we see this process of instruments taking on a sacred character over time. Right, and with the organ, it's it's really useful to note that the subtlety of the organ changed. Its ability to play softly, its ability to have a range of, of different voices. Mm, yeah. So, it wasn't just the secular associations of the organ, but it was the capacity of the organ nice. to yeah. really fit with the human voice that changed. Right. But I would say you're right, that even though we can say that that us some music is less in the spirit of Gregorian chant than others, and therefore less sacred for the Roman liturgy than than others. We also have to acknowledge that what is sacred and what is profane can change over time, because, uh, for instance, Mozart sounds nothing like to us like it did to the people who were listening to it at the time. Some things that were less admissible to the liturgy because they smacked of the secular, they smacked of the worldly, are more admissible now. And that can change. It can change. But the principle still remains the same, right, which yeah. is that the sacred liturgy must be set apart. We we can't be having in the sacred liturgy things that 
remind the people who are there of things of the world because right. the sacred yeah. liturgy has to have its own heavenly character. It yeah. has to, in some way, inspire in people what is is um, belongs to the world that is to come. And particularly, it has to never leave behind the tradition of Gregorian chant that grew up with it, or else it really ceases to be the Latin liturgy. And we're talking about the traditional Latin mass. You really can't have the traditional Latin mass if you leave behind the Latin tradition. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and even in that Latin tradition... Uh, there were times of the year where instruments were not even permitted. Right. If they're following the rules, no Tridentine Mass should have music, whether in in, um, Lent or um, during the September Ember Days or at Requiem Masses or the like. Thank you, Joe. Uh, This has been very good, and we'll continue talking next time. Thank you very much, Michael.